Good morning again. It's great to see. I thought we would begin today with a little history lesson. So I'll give you the date and we'll see if you know the year. We'll start early. July 4th. 1776. Very good. How about, uh, let me check my notes here. How about December 7th? 1941. June 6th? 1944, the start and the end of World War II. Now here, here's one maybe that would be a little harder. Uh, December the 16th, 1907, Oklahoma becomes a state. Seems like a pretty important date, right? How about October 31st? Any big church history buffs? 1517, the Reformation is born. Changed the world forever. October 12th, 1492, Christopher Columbus discovers a new world. July 20th, 19... Very good, Larry. I was go- you know what, that's the first day after my fifth birthday. First day in the military. That's the day that uh, we walked on the moon. Days that changed the world forever. September 11th, 2001, right? 15 years ago. Changed the world forever. What, what has happened in our nation in 15 years? A lot, right? I, I would have Wilson, I don't want to embarrass Wilson, but Wilson turns 15 this week. That's what's happened in 15 years, right? A boy is born and, and grows up into a young man. There's, there's lots of things that happen in 15 years. And so today is, is an important and historical day. It's a day that has literally changed our world forever. Now, some of you, this is, this is a younger crowd, okay? How many of you were not here on September 11th? Like, like didn't, weren't alive, September 11th. All right, there's a few of you that were... 20 in 2001. How many of you don't remember, weren't old enough to really remember what was going on in September 11, 2001? Several more. We had some young children. And then the rest of us, we could probably tell you exactly where we were, right? On that, that horrific morning as the, the unthinkable happened, right? Planes were hijacked and purposefully flown into the Twin Towers to kill innocent people. And the world changed. A plane was hijacked and flown into the Pentagon. A plane hijacked and from, from the stories that we know, the, the, the purpose or the end of that was, was uh, foiled by passengers. And a plane went down in the fields of Pennsylvania. The world has changed in 15 years. Just look at our nation. We've been at war ever since. There's there's been this, this rise of a new kind of terrorism that has brought terror all over the world in ways that we could not even have imagined before 2011. In our own nation, the formation, the formation of the Department of Homeland Security, having a, a branch of our own government that, that, that surveys, that surveillances, that offers surveillance even to its own citizens to watch for, for terror, to watch for things that are, could become unsafe 
and security risks and issues in our own nation. The Department of Justice was reconfigured in some areas to provide what now we call the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. We may not have heard of that group, but we've heard of ICE, right? ICE. That helps us to guard our borders and and deals with immigration and, and vetting people as they would want to come into our nation that they are safe to invite and to welcome into this place. And maybe the one that impacts the most of us is the TSA, the Transportation Security Agency, right? Life has changed at the airport. Some of us remember the days where you showed up about 15 or 20 minutes before the plane left and you just walked right on. And that world is gone forever. What are those days in your own life that have changed your life, your family, the nation forever? We all have those dates, don't we? Well, as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians, there's at least two dates. We don't know the exact dates, but two events that took place on specific days that have changed our world forever. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll read the first few verses, and that will set up for us these two events that have literally transformed and changed our world from the moment they happened, the moment they were announced. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. That key event that has changed the world forever, in fact, it may be the most significant life-transforming and world-changing event ever, begins with this concept and idea of the mystery of Christ. Now, the, the, what we want to talk about is, is the coming of Christ into this world. The mystery of, the theological word would be the mystery of the incarnation in which God became man. The world changed on the day that the angel came to Joseph and said, Joseph, Emmanuel will be born. Emmanuel, God with us shall be born. The angel of the Lord went to Mary and said, you will conceive a child. And in the birth, in the announcement, in the birth of this child, the world has literally transformed and changed forever. In Colossians 1.15, Paul says this about the mystery of the incarnation, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said to his disciples in, in, uh, in John, I believe, it was in John 14 where he said, If you have seen me, you have seen my Father. In Philippians 2, Paul puts it this way. He says Jesus was, was God and Jesus emptied himself. There's great mystery here, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a bondservant. He became man and he came and he lived among us. The Gospel of John begins with this beautiful passage on the Logos, this idea and concept of being. He says the Logos was, was, was God. 
And the Logos was essential and critical in, in the creation and the sustaining of the world. And then in, in chapter 1, verse 14 of John, he says, And the Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The mystery of Christ, the mystery of the Incarnation, has transformed and changed our world forever. And I would argue it's the greatest event in the history of mankind. But the second event of Ephesians chapter 3 is also a day that changed the world forever, at least in my opinion. Paul speaks, if you look at, uh, at verse 3, he speaks about, By revelation there was made known to me, the mystery. So Paul is saying there was a, a mystery that was made known to me, that was specifically revealed to me. Do you remember Paul's story? Paul was, was, was as a religious Jewish person as you could be, he, he called himself a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a leader in the church. He followed the law. He was a leader in the, in the temple. He followed the law as perfectly as he could. He was a key leader in the church. In fact, he was so protective and he was so passionate about the temple and about the law that he committed himself to pursuing those that were of a new religious faith called the way. In fact, we have the story of Paul at the, the martyrdom of Stephen and that Paul was there watching the entire time as Stephen was put to death because he was a Christian, because he was a follower of Christ a follower of the way. And so Paul had arranged to get the authority of, of, of the temple to go to a place called Damascus because there had been a, a, a birth of some other folks of the way. And Paul was going with the authority of the priest to arrest any followers he could find, to bind them up, and to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be tried and, and obviously so that they could ultimately be Put to death as well. And yet on his journey to this, on the road to Damascus, Paul encountered Christ. He encountered a revelation, a vision, and, and the Lord Jesus spoke specifically to Paul. And through this encounter, Paul claims an authority and a place among the apostles that gives him an authority that nobody else in the early church has except for the apostles. And so Paul is writing to, to the church at Ephesus and to all those other churches that this letter would be shared with, and he's sharing about how he experienced this revelation, and now it's his task and it's his opportunity to share this revelation with all those that would listen. It, it, when we turn back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Paul says, and we'll just start in verse 16, Do not cease giving thanks for you, I do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So again, coming to a place of knowledge of Jesus Christ is a place of wisdom and a place of receiving and embracing the revelation of Christ. Of having our hearts and our minds enlightened to the point where we accept by faith the revelation that Jesus is Savior and Lord. He's Messiah. He is the Son of God. 
So this idea of revelation is an important part of, of, of who we are and what we believe. And so I want to just spend a moment defining what I believe are some of the key points of revelation in general and why that becomes so specific that Paul says, I want to share this revelation that's been made known to me, to you, and specifically to us this morning. First of all, we would define revelation as that act is that proactive act of God to reveal himself to, to you and to me. God takes the initiative to make himself known to us and to all people. And there are three ways that we have historically and traditionally understood how God has revealed himself to us throughout the history of humanity. The first way is a general revelation that's made known to every person. And that's how God has revealed himself to us through creation. In Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks specifically of this kind of revelation. It says that in the creation of the world, as we look about and we see the creation of this world, that there's no one without excuse to understand that there's a God. Each person, because we live in this beautiful created world, that there's something about creation that stirs within each of us the reality and the truth that there is a God. And as we look at creation, we see the characteristics, we see the nature of God revealed through the creation in which we live in. We know that God is a God of beauty as we see the beauty of God's creation. We know that God is a God of power as we see the power of creation manifest itself. We know that God is a God of order because we see the way in which the universe is ordered and the way that our world is ordered in so many different ways. God has revealed himself to us through creation. But then the specific revelation that we, we proclaim and profess as Christians continues. The first way that God chose to reveal himself after creation was he chose to reveal himself through a people. And so in Genesis chapter 12, we have the, the, the first three verses there are the institution of the Abrahamic covenant. It's where God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to reveal myself to you and to all of your descendants, and I'm going to bless you in this. And the reason God chooses to bless and reveal himself to a people is so that all people, so that you and I can also be blessed by God. So in revealing himself to Abraham and to all of his descendants, God is choosing to reveal his nature and his character to us in so many different ways. And so as you read through the Old Testament, what's one of the key ways or one of the key things we learn about God? We, we learn his names, so to speak. And when we learn the names of God, they reveal his character to us. God is provider. God is nurturer. God is protector. God is sustainer. God is savior. He's mighty warrior. These things are revealed to Abraham and to his people so that we can know God. God is revealing himself to us through a specific people. And then as we come into what we would call the New Testament, God has chosen to reveal himself in one last and complete and final way. And that is through his son, Jesus. Jesus is God, the God-man. He became man and dwelt among us. And so God has revealed himself to us through a son, as I said earlier, so that when we see Jesus, we see the Father. 
And so as we study the life of Christ, as we see his compassion, as we see his love, as we see his focus on redemption and redeeming and saving and forgiving people, again, we have a picture, a revelation of who God is in this world. So for Christians, Jesus is the final and ultimate revelation and supersedes any other claims of revelation before or after the life of Christ. And certainly this would be offensive to those who are outside of the faith. But again, the good news of the revelation of Christ through his people, through a people in the Old Testament, and through Christ in the New Testament, is that God's revelation, God's redemptive work is available to each and every person who's ever lived. It's not exclusive. It's inclusive and welcoming of all people. Now, the Scripture records this revelation. The Old Testament is the story of, of, the, of God's people and the, the lineage of Abraham and how God has revealed himself. The New Testament is the record, is the story of God's revelation through Jesus and his spirit through the birth of the early church and the life and death of Christ. And so God has revealed himself to us in these ways. And the scripture, as it has been written, as it has been shared, as it has been protected throughout thousands of years, comes down to us as a faithful witness to this scripture. One of the ways that we would say this is God illumined, the, excuse me, God inspired the scriptures through those who wrote the scriptures. And today God continuing, God's spirit continues to illuminate the same scripture through his spirit so that his revelation continues to be alive and active and dynamic in our own lives. So Paul is declaring in verse 3 that he has received this revelation, a new revelation, a, a mysterious revelation. He's given us his credentials that, that Christ Jesus himself appeared to him and therefore as an apostle of Christ and he would say, as the least of the apostles, now I share this revelation with you. So what is this new mystery? What is this revelation that Paul is excited and is passionate about sharing? Well, verse 6 tells us, Gentiles are fellow heirs of Jesus Christ. Let me read the entire verse 6. Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, why is that such a big deal? Well, it's such a big deal because you and I, probably most of us in here, are Gentiles. And before Christ came, we were outside of being God's people, being considered God's people. And the mystery that Paul is revealing is that Christ and his promises of inheritance, of eternal life, are now made available to all of us, each and every one of us. There's no one now who needs to be outside of God's work of grace and of love. We are all included in Christ Jesus. And here's even better news. We don't have to become Jews in order to be partakers of the gospel of Christ. You see, you could, even in, in the, the, those days of the Old Testament, you could become one of God's people, but you had to become a Jew first. And the good news for us today is that you don't have to become anything 
In order to become a Christian, you just have to receive God's grace and His love and His mercy. You receive His promises in Christ Jesus. And by faith, we receive those promises through Christ. I think this is a message that we need to remind ourselves of today. For you see, I think there, there was a time in our, in our recent history, and certainly among some of us even today, is that in order to become like Christ, first you have to become like me. In order to become a Christian, well, first you need to become an American. And while the, our missionary efforts of the, the 17th and 18th and 19th, probably the 18th and 19th, 20th centuries are fantastic, sometimes the missionary message came with a promise of you become westernized, you become an American, and then you can become a Christian. And what we need to understand is that God's grace is for everybody. God's grace is for the Gentile. It's, it's for those that, that aren't Americans. It's for those that aren't Westerners. You don't have to become a, a, an American or a Westerner to receive Christ Jesus and partake in the gospel of Christ. And this is an important and Im, important and significant message that we need to remember. You see, Christianity is not culturally bound. Rather, Christianity is culturally transformative. We share Christ, and in people in their families, in their own cultures, as they receive Christ, Christ begins to do a work of transformation within the culture, within the family. And that is the good news of Christ. Paul continues on in verse 8. Remember last week we talked about that, that we, come to gra we, we come to grace, we come to salvation through faith. It's not of works so that no one would boast. But once we receive God's grace, then we discover the invitation that God has planned for us good works to do, that he is forming and shaping us, and that now we're commissioned to go out and to do the good works of the kingdom of God. Paul in verse 8 says this, To me, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Paul is saying the good work that God has ordained for me to do is to go into preaching to tell this mystery to the Gentiles, that the kingdom of God is now for the Gentiles. And Paul would say, and my task is to go and to share that with the Gentiles so that they can come and know Christ. He continues in verse 8. To me, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ. What are the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about that? When we come to faith in Christ, Paul is saying, I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. He's coming to preach to you and to me. He's going to preach to those who, who have not been a part of the people of God, who are, are suffering, who are lost. And he's come to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, Paul in chapter 3, verse 14, begins a prayer. He begins a prayer for the church. And I think it's in this prayer that he unpacks some of the different layers and some of the different meanings of what the riches of Christ are like. If you look at that passage for me, and we heard some of it earlier with uh, Tim and Amy's dedication of Braxton. 
let me pull out at least four things that I think the riches of Christ refers to. First of all, that those who are in Christ are strengthened with power through the Spirit of God in the inner man, in the inner woman. So what does it mean to receive the riches of Christ? When we receive the riches of Christ, He begins this work in us through His Spirit to strengthen us, to strengthen our inner person. How do you survive days like 9-11? How do you survive those days where life just seems to be transformed right in the midst of your eyes? When the buildings of your lives come crumbling down? When those that you love are, fun, are just gone? How do, you serve, how do you go on from that? Well, it seems to me that, that part of the riches of Christ gives us a clue to how we survive. Because in Christ Jesus, in His Spirit, we can be strengthened in the inner person. And the only way you can survive those hardships of life is if your inner person is strong. If your character is strong, if God has been able to work and to mold and to, to shape and strengthen you with his power from within. Next, Paul says that the riches of Christ include the indwelling of Christ in your hearts through faith. The riches of Christ is that we begin to grow in our own faith. That we begin to believe and to trust and to act out all that God has for us. So the Spirit of God is continually strengthening the inner person while Christ, the indwelling Christ, is changing and transforming our hearts and drawing us to Him and strengthening our faith. Again, so that we can learn to see God in the midst of such tragedy. So that we can experience and trust that God is at work in the midst of such tragedy and bad days. Next, notice what Paul says. That the riches of Christ means that we are rooted and grounded in love. Are you rooted and grounded in love? It's been several months ago we had a talking to a mom of one of our college students that was from out of, out of the area, and she was visiting her daughter, and we began to talk after the sermon one day, and she said, you know, the Christians in my community are known as the mean people. They're the people that want to condemn you and judge you, and they're mean to you, and they want to exclude you. And I'm thinking, wow, the riches of Christ Jesus is that we're rooted and grounded in love. How could the reputation of Christian people be that we're the mean people in town? In Christ Jesus, we're rooted, we're grounded in love so that we can love and share and nurture and come alongside folks. And yes, a part of love is, is justice and being just and right. But part of love is also giving and sharing and loving and coming alongside those that are hurting and walking with them. Are you rooted and grounded in love today? And finally, Paul says that the riches of Christ are described as being filled with the fullness of God. Are, are you filled with God's fullness? Are you filled with His goodness, with His love, with His compassion, with the heart of God? Are you filled with that? And again, that, that's, there's so many levels and layers of that. This is unfathomable riches 
that are found in Christ Jesus, but are you filled with the fullness of God? Are you living and experiencing His fullness through each and every day of life? You see, the riches of Christ are not about having the biggest house and the best cars and, and, and having the best vacations. That's what a lot of Christians will tell you, right? Is that if you'll come to Christ, you'll have everything you want on the outside. But the gospel message is that if you come to Christ, it doesn't matter what the outside's like. Because why? Because you're being rooted and grounded in love. Because in the inner person, you're being made strong. Because your heart is growing in faith. Because you are beginning to live in the fullness of God. What an incredible, radical message that we have to share. That God is about transforming and changing us and allowing us to begin to live in the unfathomable riches of Christ. So in reality for us today, there's a third event that Ephesians 3 challenges us to and proclaims is intended to change the world. And that is the riches of Christ being manifested in you and in me. So here's a couple of questions before we finish today. Are you living in the strength, in the faith, in the love, and in the fullness of Christ? That's a question that each one of us has to answer. If you would say, no, I'm not living in His strength, I'm not living in His faith, I'm not living in His love and His fullness, my question to you is, why not? Why have you rejected the riches of Christ? Or why have you not committed yourself to growing and, and experiencing the riches of Christ in your life each and every day? Today. Today could be the day that changes and transforms your life forever. It could be the day that you reclaim that inheritance and heritage from God to begin living again in the riches and the fullness of Christ. Will today, September 11th, 2016, be the day that you mark as the day that changed your life, that changed your family, that changed your world forever? You see, the mystery of Christ proclaims that we are all partakers of the promises of Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith, His riches are available to you and to me. So today, September 11th, 2016, will you receive these riches? Let's pray.